This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, we are moving from Judges to Ruth. 1 Samuel um, chapter 3 is an interesting story. Uh, On the surface, it looks like something that may not really apply to us, but as we dig into it, I think you'll find it's um, incredibly pertinent to your journey, perhaps where God has you now, and certainly all of us. 1 Samuel chapter 3, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning, and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son? Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. While this story records God calling a young boy to serve as a prophet in and to the people of Israel, it's also a story about God calling someone to himself. God calling someone to embrace him, to follow him, to enter into relationship with him. It's a story that's representative of a broader human experience. 
the calling of God to embrace him, to follow him, to enter into relationship with him is something we all need. We're going to see how this story drives at that. We're going to look at the calling of God, why we need it, how it happens, and what proves its legitimacy. Why we need it, how it happens, and what proves its legitimacy. First, why we need the call of God. We're told that the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Eli was the priest. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, God gave Israel detailed instructions on how the tabernacle proceedings were to unfold. It was the priest who would make sure that everything God said was followed to a T. Samuel is Eli's protege. He lives in the tabernacle. He's occupied all day with the religious duties charged to the priest. Samuel's life at this time, and we're picking up the story, is characterized by more religious activity than anybody in this room. And yet, Samuel did not know the Lord. That is, he had no direct experience with God. He had yet to personally encounter God. He had yet to receive a call from God to embrace him, to follow him, or to enter into relationship with him. And it's such an appropriate point to draw out in our modern world. So often we equate knowing God with religious activity. We equate knowing God with attending church, living a moral life, reading the Bible, giving money to those in need, volunteering our time, or just acknowledging a spiritual side to ourselves. We mistakenly believe religious activity constitutes an encounter with God. But the way the story of Samuel unfolds makes it glaringly obvious. Religious activity is no sign of a personal experience with God. If I was to ask you, what makes you a Christian? How would you respond to the question? What makes you a Christian? Numerous people answer the question by reciting religious activity. Religious activity is no sign of a personal experience with God. Remember, Samuel's life was characterized by more religious activity than anybody in this room, and yet he still did not know the Lord. In fact, the picture is bleaker than that. Pick it up in verse 2. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. So visually, we're being given a picture of what happens when the word of the Lord is rare. The word of the Lord was rare, we're told in the first verse. Now, visually, we're being given a picture of what happens when the word of God is rare. The author goes to great lengths to demonstrate to the readers, to us, that it's nighttime. In the ancient world, without electricity, nighttime was a time of the unknown, where evil lurks, camouflaged in darkness. The setting is ominous. It's foreboding. Eli is blind, which isn't just an interesting biological tidbit about him. It contributes to the condition of the impenetrable darkness and spiritual ruin that Israel finds herself in. 
Such is the condition of humanity when, as the text says, the word of the Lord is rare. It's, there's the picture. It's darkness. This actually harkens back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, but before he spoke, before he uttered even one word, we're told that the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Where God's word is absent, there is darkness. Without the word of God, there can be no call of God. Without the call of God, we grope about in palpable existential darkness without an answer to the question, what is the meaning of it all? Emile Callier was born in a small rural village in France near the end of the 19th century. His early education was committed to naturalism, leaving no room for the supernatural, leaving no room for God or, or supernatural intervention into human affairs. But his commitment to naturalism proved to be of little help to him during his frontline experiences in World War I. Confronted with the horror of war, he asked this, he said, what use the ill-kept ancient type of sophistry and the philosophic banter of the seminar when your own buddy dies standing in front of you, a bullet in his chest? Was there a meaning to it all? A person can endure anything if only it appears meaningful. But what are the caprices of fate? What of random killing of senseless ordeal? The moment came when I was overwhelmed by the inadequacy of my views. What could be done about it? I did not know. Who was I? Nay, what was I? These fundamental questions of human existence remained unanswered. Well, one night a bullet found Callier as well. An American field ambulance saved his life. And after a nine-month hospital stay, he was discharged, and he resumed his graduate studies. But at that moment, he had to admit the books no longer seemed like the same books, nor his motivation the same. After his time in the war, he reflected on all his experiences. He said this, during the long night watches in the foxholes, I had a strange way been looking for a book that would understand me. I knew of no such book. Now I would in secret prepare one for my own private use. And so I went on reading for my courses. I would file passages that would speak to my condition then carefully copy them in a leather-bound pocketbook I would always carry with me. Well, at last, the time came when he put the finishing touches on this book he said would understand me. He describes a beautiful sunny day in which he sat under a tree and opened his precious anthology. As he read, however, he was overcome by a growing disappointment. Instead of speaking to his condition as he expected, the passages only reminded him of their context, of the circumstances of his labor over their selection. And then Callier says he knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was his own making. In a dejected mood, he put the book back into his pocket. On that same day, Callier's wife had come into possession of a Bible by extraordinary circumstances. 
Emil had always been adamant that religion would be taboo in their home. And at the tender age of 23, he had yet to even see a copy of the Bible. But at the end of that disappointing day, when she apologetically tried to explain how she had providentially picked up a copy of the Bible, he was eager to see it. He describes what happened next. I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find the words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive in me. Callier's story is illustrative of what a life looks like when the word of God is rare. His own questions are haunting. Who am I? What am I? Is there a book that understands me? His questions strike an eerie tone of one groping about in darkness. Callier needed the call of God. He needed the call of God to break into his life. And his description of what took place when that happened paints a picture of light breaking into darkness. This is why we need the call of God. Second, how it happens. How it happens. There's a number of things to notice about this. The first is that God initiates his call There is no magical incantation Samuel performs in order to receive the call. There's nothing in the story that would indicate Samuel performs some sort of religious rite in order to get God to personally call him. God summons Samuel to embrace him, to follow him, to enter into a relationship with him through his unilateral initiative. Bottom line, God decided at this moment to call Samuel. It is a quiet but powerful demonstration of God's sovereign grace. Let me pause there for a moment. Look, if God has called you, if he has summoned you to follow Jesus, you have no one to thank but God alone. This is not a game of spiritual chess where you can insidiously make the right moves to back God into a corner where he must bow to your wishes. Yes, God uses means. He uses the means of his word. The means are employed here every Sunday. But God's awakening call is not formulaic. He calls people. He wakes them from their slumber in his time and in his way. It is his sovereign grace. Notice something else here. How many times after it's all said and done does God call Samuel? Not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times. Four times. Why? Why four times? Now, let's not be too critical of Samuel here. The author makes no condescending commentary on Samuel's thick-headedness. First question we should ask in biblical interpretation, what does it say about God? What is this text saying about God? What is it saying about God? 
He's persistent and he's patient simultaneously. Yes? Many of you can attest to this. I've talked to you. I've heard your stories. How many times did God call you before you responded? First, one, two, three, four. It took a while. Yeah, it took a while. God is patient. Persistent and patient. Now think for a moment about this scene from Samuel's perspective. What is the night like? It's like any other. It's like any other. There's nothing extraordinary about it. It's mundane. It's business as usual. There was no foreshadowing that this night would be extraordinary. Such is the way of God. But we like to give God an assist, right? We want to tee him up. So we put the perfect event on. Now, God, you can come in and save some people. No. That's not the way it works. This was a night like any other. Jackie Hill Perry writes of her night. She writes this, God knew he wouldn't get my attention in a church. Churches didn't care too well for people like me, me being a gay girl, a gay girl who knew better than to let my feet take me where I didn't feel welcome. So God came to my house. I was having a very unspiritual kind of night. The TV was on. The morning was hours away. My thoughts were boring and typical until they turned on me. Suddenly and randomly, I had the unsettling thought that my sin would be the death of me. I sat up in bed and thought deeply about all that was happening in me. I'd known about God for so long, but now it seemed as if God was inviting me to know him, to love him, to walk with him, to be in relationship with him. That moment, that epiphany that my sin left untreated would be the death of me wasn't a matter of trying to be straight or even trying to escape hell no it was about God positioning himself before my eyes so that I could finally see that he is everything he says he is and worthy to be trusted in the scriptures she writes I knew there existed much condemnation for all that I loved and lived But in the same Bible where I found condemnation, I also found the good news that God loved and died for people like me so that I could live forever. I didn't need to know much more than that. Without a sermon, an altar call, or any emotionally laden music gesturing me to come to Jesus, just sitting in my bed with the TV on and the sun not yet up, I saw Jesus. He was better than everything I'd ever known and more worthy of having everything I thought was mine to own, including my affections. They were for him to have, to be glorified with. And that was it. We don't orchestrate the call of God. We can't maneuver God into issuing his call into people's lives to follow him, love him, relate to him daily. God's call comes to us on his initiative 
often during the ordinary, without fanfare, and always with great patience. So I wonder, is God calling you even now? Nothing extraordinary about the day. The sun came up, the alarm clock went off, as it always does. You got up, you got dressed, you got ready, and now you're here. Nothing extraordinary. Is God calling you? Third, what proves its legitimacy? I want to read this middle section again. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then he opened the doors to the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal it be with you, be it ever so severely. If you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And we have to back up in the story. Why was Eli's family being judged so harshly? Well, it's recorded in chapter 2. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also priests serving in the tabernacle. They conducted themselves poorly, to say the least. They were taking an inappropriate cut of the food, reserving the choicest meat for themselves, rather than having as part of the sacrifice. It was exploitative and it was greedy. Additionally, in full view of all, they would routinely sleep with women who were working with them in the tabernacle. Eli is portrayed as the passive priest and father who did little, if anything, to put a stop to it. This is the backdrop for the judgment. Now, nonetheless, let's let's put ourselves in Samuel's shoes. You finally recognize it's God that's calling you. How are you feeling at that moment? Anxious? Feeling a sense of anticipation? This is God. This is God. Are you thinking this is wonderful? Finally, I'm hearing the voice of God. Finally, he's speaking to me. And the very first message, the very first message Samuel hears, the very first message that God gives to Samuel is disruptive, abrasive, and devastating. That's the very first message he gets. God, why can't you just go to Eli and tell him that directly? It's a judgment that he is to communicate to Eli. It's a teeth-rattling message of eternity without hope of parole. Right out of the gate, the legitimacy of Samuel's calling is being tested. How so? Will he submit to God? Even when what God has to say appears terribly unpalatable, will he submit to God? 
Will Samuel embrace this hard-to-swallow message of God? His calling is being tested, and yours will be too. Yours will be too. You know you've entered into a true relationship with God when he is able to speak truths into your life that are hard to swallow, but you submit to them anyway. That's when you know. If the only things you accept from God are messages that meet with your approval, you don't have a relationship with him. You've got a Stepford God. You've got a Stepford God. Remember the two movies, Stepford Wives? Husbands of Stepford, Connecticut decide to have their wives turn into robots who never contradict them, who never disagree with them, who agree with them all the time. A Stepford wife was a wonderfully compliant and beautiful wife, but as you watch the movies, no one in their right mind would say that that marriage was personal or intimate. Nobody. Those husbands had no relationship with their wives whatsoever. None. So what happens if God is never able to overrule you or contradict you? What happens? What happens if you have a God who tells you only what you want to hear? You have a God of your own making. You have a robot. You have a Stepford God. If the God of the Bible... If the God in your life never corrects you, you have a step for God, not the God of the Bible. You will know you've entered into a relationship with God. You will know you've received a call from God. You will know you've answered that call when he is able to say things to you that are hard to swallow, but you submit to them anyway. That's when you know you've answered the call of God. Nobody modeled this better than Jesus. Think about this with me as we close. Nobody modeled this better than Jesus. Jesus always existed. There never was a time when Jesus wasn't. From eternity, he lived in the most satisfying relationship with Father and Spirit. Within the triune Godhead, there was only perfection. No sin, no evil, no wrongdoing, no corruption, no degradation, just resplendent perfection. There was a day when the Father came to the Son and delivered to him a disruptive, abrasive, and devastating message. The Father asked the Son, to leave his home and the perfection he enjoyed there, to clothe himself in frail human flesh, to live inside of space and time in a sin-ravaged world, and to die in the place of rebels. A disruptive, abrasive, devastating message. Though Jesus was entitled to say no, Entitled to say no. Instead, he submitted to this hard-to-swallow message. And the result of his submission to this hard-to-swallow message 
is your salvation and mine. While God may, through his word, give us difficult things to understand, give us difficult things to submit to, we know that when we look at Jesus, we can trust him. He is not asking us to submit to hard to swallow truth because he's out to get us. He has demonstrated the abundance of his love. We can trust him. Because as Jackie put it, he's better than anything you've ever known. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's take a moment of reflection. Is the word of God rare or abundant in your life right now? This past week, would you say the word of God was rare or abundant? The story with Samuel and Eli is compelling. When God's word is rare, it makes it very difficult to see reality clearly. Where the word of God is rare, there's darkness. If you're going through a season where God's word is rare in your life, would you just confess that to him? Ask him to grant you the grace and strength to work into a season where God's word is abundant in your life? Maybe you can relate really well to Samuel. Your life has been characterized by robust religious activity. The story makes it clear. Religious activity is no indicator of a personal experience with God. Maybe today is the day and now is the time. God summons you like he did Samuel, Emil, Jackie, and so many others. Maybe now is the time that God summons you without fanfare, but with a quiet and powerful demonstration of his sovereign grace. Perhaps you're in a season where the legitimacy of your embrace of God is being tested as you try to submit to hard to swallow truths. Maybe you don't like what God is saying or doing in your life right now. You find it unpalatable. He's asking you to forgive someone who's deeply offended you. You find it more pleasurable to hold on to the bitterness. He's asking you to turn away from a sin that you've grown to love. God will not settle for our verbal agreement on certain truths. He's after our wholehearted submission to him as Lord and Master.
Gracious God, we thank you and praise you for the call that you've issued into so many of our lives. We didn't manipulate you into it. On your gracious and sovereign initiative, it came. Thank you for giving us ears to hear and for enabling us to respond. Pray you would work in us a deepening trust in your goodness that causes us to submit to you even when faced with hard-to-swallow truths. Through those moments, you would show us those are the evidence of a real relationship. God, I pray you would inflame our affections for Jesus who's the ultimate exemplar of submitting to a tough message. Through his obedience, through his submission to this hard to swallow message, you can adopt us as sons and daughters. We worship you for that now, for Jesus' sake.